0: Hey everybody, welcome back to the TeamCast. I'm Coleman Ruiz, the Director of Performance at the Mission Critical Team Institute, and the TeamCast is a show where Dr. Preston Klein and I and our guests discuss all things mission-critical teams. MCTs are teams of 4 to 12 people, indigenously trained, that solve rapidly emergent, complex, adaptive problem sets, and who work in immersive environments of 300 seconds or less, where the consequence of failure is death or catastrophic loss. However narrow the definition of mission-critical teams, and whether you're on one or not, we aim to bring you the broadest range of topics and guests as possible. Thanks for being here. And once again, enjoy the team cast. I'm pleased and honored And excited to bring you an incredibly honest conversation with our guest today, my friend Jimmy Hatch. Jimmy's a veteran of multiple combat tours all over the world, founder of Spike's Canine Fund, author of Touching the Dragon, and just finishing his freshman year at Yale University as a 52-year-old freshman. On the show, we discuss his experience at Yale this past year and what it's been like studying the classics such as the Iliad and the Odyssey with classmates 35 years younger than he is. We talk about his path into special operations, quitting once before making it through a second time. We talk about his combat experience, being shot at close range trying to save another American soldier, watching his military working dog get killed. And we discuss Jimmy's slide into depression that literally brought him to within seconds of committing suicide on his front porch. We get the most honest perspective I've ever heard on the topic of residue and how Jimmy battled back from the brink. And finally, we talk about his dogs and his ground-level high-speed videos of Dewey, Mina, and Lola. So once again, without further delay, please welcome and enjoy my conversation with Jimmy Hatch. First of all, obviously, thank you for being on the team cast. I'm as excited about this conversation as I have been um, in quite some time for a lot of different reasons, which I'll I'll share along the way. But the first thing I would like to do, Jimmy, is reference, I'm almost, well, I read your entire book, Touching the Dragon, and almost at the very, very end, um, you referenced a speech you gave at... NAS Oceana to some fighter pilots. And there's a couple rules of engagement here. Number one, you don't like the audience to ask about classified materials. And number two, don't ask about how many people you've killed. And I agree with you. It's the the stupidest question that I've ever heard. But the most important part that I wanted to bring up here as we started was, um, you can ask me anything else. And you say, seriously, I'm not gonna hide anything. And if those rules of engagement apply, I just wanna make sure you and I are operating off the same page of music yep, here.
1: 100%. I think, you know, that's the only way to talk about this kind of stuff is under the auspices that we have There's no I don't I call it wearing my ass for a hat. I don't <laughs> care, man. I really don't. Like it's not I'm good with whatever.
0: For the benefit of the wider audience, what is life like for you right now? Not as in COVID, but as in school, and how different things are, but just curious how things are for you right now. Things are
1: uh, pretty amazing, and better than I could have imagined. Like, uh, <clears throat> just the fact that I've been afforded the opportunities that I've been afforded, in spite of my, you know, uh, <laughs> circumstances, you know. I uh, I took a GED to get out of high school. Um, I did, there were times in my high school career where I had a three- Five average. But most of it, I was a D student. Uh, I just didn't go. I didn't like it. I didn't feel like it was worthwhile to me. There were some things about school that interested m- me, but by and large, I just thought it was a waste of time and I, something I had to do to where I could get in the military. Uh, so having been in the military for as long as I was and then you know going through the troubles that I went through at the end and figuring it out, starting my little nonprofit and coming from a place where I didn't want to talk to anybody and I didn't want to really be alive. And, uh, to where I'm sitting in a class with these kids from all over the world, really that are amazing. And the faculty is amazing. And, you know, it's, uh, I actually wrote a letter to the president of the university or an email to the president of the university a few days ago. Mm. Uh, I never really believed that I would be around a group of people that were as invested in their mission as we were at our former place of work. And uh, I I was incorrect. The people at that at Yale, you know, it's my only experience really um, with an Ivy League college. (laughs) They are not it is not amateur hour you know, the, the vetting process for the students is significant. Uh, For me, it was different. Obviously I'm a lot older and I'm part of a program called the Eli Whitney student program, which is specifically for people like me. You know, I think they admitted 13 of us last year and of the 13, seven were veterans. So, uh, you know, people who are older come from different backgrounds and uh, you know, the admissions rate for the Eli Whitney program is about – I think it's a little less than 6 percent, but it's roughly the same as the undergraduate stuff. So I think by and large you're judged in, in different ways. It's – the only way to really judge an 18-year-old kid is by their test scores and you know their GPA from high school and then maybe some of their extracurriculars. And these kids take that stuff seriously. <laughs> uh, it's pretty crazy, uh, the things that they do. <clears throat> But it's honestly, you know, I've talked to, I've been through different types of mental health um, programs from the time I was very young because of things that, you know, uh, that happened in my childhood. And for mental health, I, I don't know that there could be a better program. There were some definite bumps. I was involved in this program called the Directed Studies Program, which is something that as a Yale undergraduate, you can only do it you're as a first year, um, you have to apply for it after you're accepted to Yale. And it's essentially mm. kind of going through the Western canon. I was the first non-traditional student that was involved in that. And there were days where I read things, you know, that were required reading, uh, where I wept <laughs> and it brought up things that I didn't realize I was carrying. Uh, it was an amazing I mean, I honestly believe, I, I know people, you and I, friends of both of ours, that I think we could sit down and use the exact same curriculum and uh, we would benefit in a great way. Like, I I think it was amazing. Uh, I, I can't praise it enough, you know. My vocabulary is limited, and so I don't <laughs> have all of the, you know, I'm certainly not John Milton. Um, but, wow.
2: yeah,
1: uh, And, you know, Look, the the people from admissions have approached me and say, "Hey, you know how you doing?" And I and I say, "Hey, you know this is amazing, and this is a not unlike, you know, a special missions unit. Like yeah. the vetting process is difficult. Once you get here, the resources are significant. The only excuse for failure is you get injured or hurt and you can't. You know, you get out of there. Like the there's really no excuse to fail. <laughs> the there are so many people and so many different ways to get help with." You know, you name it. Uh, so that program, you know, if it makes the podcast cut, I think, you know, oh, yeah. especially, especially guys like me who, you know, didn't go to college or maybe went to a year or two of college and then, you know, joined the service. So people who have not finished their undergrad, I, I, would, I would highly recommend them to look at that. And back to my conversation with the admissions folks, after I told them how great everything was and how fortunate I felt to be there, they said, well, Jimmy, we want more people like you here. So put the word out. So
0: I've
1: been trying, I've been trying to do that with, you know, different people from the special operations community at different units and just saying, Hey, look, this is out there, man. Check it out. It's no joke.
0: So Jimmy, as a, so for the audience here, um, who doesn't know, Jimmy's a, Jimmy's a freshman at Yale. Um, correct me if I'm wrong on a couple of these points here, Jimmy, it's a, the Eli Whitney portion of the program is the, is the mechanism to get into Yale the directed studies is something once you're there, but your program is a full four-year regular bachelor's program like every other 18, 19-year-old kid coming into Yale.
1: Yep, exactly. So they they assess uh, – I went to Old Dominion University for a couple of semesters uh, after I right after I got out of the service, and so they they assess your grades from college or high school, Okay, um, and then you have to write some essays – uh, and then recommendations. And, you know, my ground force commander, you know, uh, Chris Demencick, Yeah. I asked him to write a recommendation for the ground force commander, and that I got hurt. Yeah. Um, and then there's some interviews, and that, those are, it's pretty daunting, man. I was, I was pretty, I was pretty afraid. I bet. Like, it was scary. <laughs> my first day in class was bona fide, frightening.
0: <laughs> I wanted to ask you specifically about the first class on the first day. I mean, how did you how did your stomach feel?
1: I was really nervous. You know, like um, you know, going to green team. Yeah. Same thing. First day you're like with all these people that you yeah. know in your heart are badasses and are accomplished, and you're thinking, like, man, shit, I, really I don't be belong here,
2: here man. <laughs>
1: exactly. A hundred percent. It was the exact same way, except I wasn't sitting with people my age. I was sitting with essentially children. And the professor, my very first class in directed studies at Yale was uh, literature and it was, we'd, we were reading the Iliad and these kids started talking about it. And I was on another planet, man. Like it was, it was amazing and daunting. Yeah. But it was also, uh, you know, I think when you're in that environment, uh, after you get over the discomfort, it's, it's like being in green team, right? Like you're looking around going, holy shit, look at the stuff we're doing. Look at the ground we're covering. Look at, You can't help but you know it's like running with people that are faster than you all the time you're going to become a better runner and that's essentially what that was the professor was a guy named david quint who's you know the sterling professor of comparative literature he's been around a long time he taught at princeton uh you know the guy's bona fide baller when it comes to that stuff and it was you know it's like having your favorite war hero instructor in green team you know like it's the same thing it was the parallels were shocking to me, actually. Yeah, I was yeah. very surprised.
0: That's, a, that's such a great thing. I, the <clears throat> one of the interesting coincidences, Jimmy, about us knowing each other is, and I'll reference this later because um, it's part of another thing that I want to talk to you about here, but uh, I don't think I ever met you. We walked around the same compound for years and years, and I don't think I ever met you in active duty. But Chris, CD, was my, he was my plebe year roommate at the Naval Academy in 1994. Holy cow! So there's a ton of obviously there's a ton of connections, but it's really unique that we didn't really know each other, you know, on active duty. But I was so curious about exactly what you're talking about now, which is the parallels to, you know, your first your first year at Yale. Which takes me. Go ahead.
1: No, it was I was shocked. You know, I was shocked at how similar it was.
0: And you mentioned your professor in your article. Um, my semester with the snowflakes, which of course, I'll put in the show notes, you made a couple comments here that you've already referenced. Uh, The first one I'd like to have you drill a little bit more into because you already mentioned David Quint was, um, you said in that article, you were essentially, you know, an alien. And you've referenced that a little bit. But what sort of manifested on a day to day basis, say in the first semester, Jimmy, that you that made you feel or maybe you didn't feel it maybe your classmates actually felt it the alienation so to speak or the difference between the two worlds that you know you and they were living in essentially
1: yeah i think you know overarching through the academic year and i didn't really i couldn't define it as well in the first semester but you know <clears throat> when you read these great works the iliad the odyssey the aeneid that's you know the literature stuff uh and then the, the, so let me quickly summarize directed studies. Yeah, please. It's divided into, into three subject areas. One is literature. The second one is philosophy. And the third one is called history and politics. And sometimes uh, you would think those, all of those things are very different, but it was amazing to me how the, those different subjects and the books that we read, which were chronologically close to each other, um, how they were kind of enmeshed, like it was it was amazing to me how they all kind of connected and that's due to the way the faculty, the professors and the lecturers presented the material and the lectures that we were involved with. Uh, you could see the connections, but the big overarching theme, the reason that I was an alien is, well, first of all, at no point in my life would I ever had the SAT scores to get into Yale. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I mean, just, yeah. Um, but more importantly you know when i read the iliad and we talk about you know when agamemnon's trying to talk achilles into coming back into the fight because they're getting their asses whipped and he's like hey man you know i'll give you more loot you know basically uh i'm bouncing that off of stuff from my past you know uh we've fought guys that weren't in the fight for the same reasons we were. And I use a phrase a lot, you know, you can't eat honor. It's a business for some people. So I'm carrying that stuff into the classroom with me. And and these kids, and they are kids, uh, they don't have that kind of baggage that they're bringing in with it. And so I felt like an alien that way. And I was really uncomfortable with the idea that I should speak up and say kind of what was on my heart, really. And the to, to a person, all of my professors were like, you need to. And I kind of got the impression, at least from most of them, that, that that was part of the reason I was there. Mm. And I have had kids like reach out to me and say, wow, I, you know, I couldn't believe you shared that stuff. I'd never had, you know, those ideas about things I didn't realize, you know, and so I started to figure out with, probably in the first month or so that 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 was kind of my job. Like, Hmm. you know, I want to be an asset. I want to bring something to the table with this crew of amazing people who bring me up every, just being around, you know, I mean, can you imagine being around a group of, you know, highly motivated kids that are destined, you know, some of them are going to be Supreme court justices or, you know, whatever, or, or physicians, or, you know, it can change the world kind of people. And, so what can I what can I bring to that? And um learning when to interject and when to talk about things. And uh fortunately I had really good faculty who I could approach and say, hey man, look, you know, this is gonna be kind of heavy. Is this something you want me to share? And they were almost always we were like,
0: hmm. yeah. Did anything go sideways in any of your classes just because your perspective was so raw for some people
1: I think
0: that there were occasions, maybe a couple
1: where I shared things that were shocking to the kids. Um, On one occasion, uh, and I'm sure you saw this in Iraq. um, I talked about how we went and we were discussing uh, Rousseau and um, this idea, you know, a lot of the, I guess, historians, philosophers, the thinkers of that time were into trying to figure out how to set up these, you know, proper political societies. And Rousseau's idea was that, you know, and and all of them said, hey, we have to go back to the original state of man. And and most of them were like, the original state of man is savage, (laughs) right? But Rousseau was like, no, the original state of man was cool. It was when we started to kind of get together and try to work things out, where we started to be brutal to each other. And I'll tell you what, man, reading that stuff kept me awake for a couple of days. And I would like, seriously, it it pissed me off. And, you know, I I was going through all these feelings, all the stuff I was bouncing off my past. Uh, the residuals, you know, for the paper. And I talked about how going into a house one night, taking down a target and they had an out kind of an out house, not so much to use as a lavatory facility because those were different, but it was like a, not a barn, but just kind of like a mother-in-law suite. That's a really rough translation. But, and we, you know, sneak in the door and we get in there and there's a, a young teenage I'm guessing man chained to the floor with, you know, he's got a chain around his ankle because he has down syndrome Mm -hmm. and he, and he didn't. And, you know, he's like happy to see people. He doesn't understand what's going on. Here's all these guys in the room with guns and he's like, Oh, you know, uh, his human waste is on the ground. And I could, that, that shocked the kids and I, and I thought, man, you know, maybe that wasn't a good thing, you know, but my point was to try to talk about how we are not as evolved as we think we are. Yeah. And I, I have a saying, and I think I stole it from Dave Cooper. <laughs> you know, we, we are five consecutively missed meals away from being complete savages. And, and I believe that, you know, and I think, um, I wanted to make that point, but I, it was, I had some of the kids approach me after and they, you know, true to, true to form. They're like, they're trying to figure out ways to help, the, the people the per- in, yeah. part, in that part of the world who have Down syndrome and are not getting the proper care. Like that's right. like, they're like, Hey, how can we, well, let me see, you know, like they're trying to figure that out and how to solve it, you know, like, yeah. Um, but it was upsetting. Um, and there were, there was one other time actually in that same class that, uh, you know, I talked about, it, it was a, it was a function of going to a target and having a, there was a child there that had been abused, sexually abused brutally. Yeah. And, you know, we had a job to do. And then we see this kid and guys are, you know, it's upsetting ground force commander. God bless him. Uh, Pete, uh, he's like, we're like, you know what? We got to take this kid. We can't leave him here. We're taking the the bad guys that we went to get, we captured them. We're taking them and we're like, we can't leave this kid. He's hurt. You know, we all wanted to kill the dudes because of what they'd done to this kid. (laughs) You know, that's called murder. We can't do that, but we'll, he's the ground force commander and we're like, what do we do? And so he's on the phone, you know, on the radio, talking back to the guys back at the base and trying to figure out what to do. And there's no child protective services in Ramadi. You yeah. know what I mean? And so I'm explaining this to these kids and to my professor and they're all like kind of horrified. And I, so this is the situation that we're in. Um, how evolved are we? Yeah. You know uh, that was kind of the gist of it. And I think those things were a little upsetting, but not in a, not in a Sam Kinison screaming in the, you know, I always oh, of would remember that, that movie where he's like, ar, ar, you yeah. know, about Vietnam. Like I'd never wanted to be like that, but yeah, th- that stuff came to the surface
0: a lot. Uh, but the kids handled it. And, uh, I you know, I wasn't thinking about any of these things, frankly, Jimmy in 20 uh, or in 1994 to 98, when I was at the Naval Academy, and, and frankly, that, that school isn't really set up for programs. There are philosophy classes and, of course, literature classes, but the truth is, is like the U.S. Naval Academy is a technical institution. The conversation you just described, I never had my entire life until 2016. I went for one week, and you're going to get this for four straight years, but I just want to you know share this idea because, because you talked about this topic. I went to the Aspen Institute for a one-week thing called Leadership in the Good Society. You know, it's just a six-day seminar. And you get put in with a group of Henry Crown fellows who are going to go back and forth to Aspen over a year. And there's different healthcare fellows and education fellows. And there were some teachers from inner city New York and, and these other places. And I grew up in New Orleans. And so, I, it, you know, going into the Navy and going overseas wasn't the first time I had seen, you know, poverty. But we got into this very similar conversation in Aspen about what is the fundamental nature of man? And it was really surprising to me. It'll take me into my next question. It was really surprising to me how committed some of the educators were to the fundamental nature of man is good. And I really struggled with that because I, I just never saw that. I never saw it when I was growing up. I never saw it overseas. And maybe I'm just missing a trick. But what it what it taught me, Jimmy, just that one week, and it's not like, you know, you and I and the guys we worked with are uneducated idiots, you know, but what I what I left Aspen thinking was I need to really take into consideration places where I'm open to having my mind changed. And I wasn't sure I knew when I was open to having my mind changed, even though I consider myself well read and open minded. And so when you put in and, and, you know, when you wrote in your article, your semester with the snowflakes, um, and you can talk about the whole article, you know, when we're done here with a couple of questions about it. But you mentioned being your time there in the first semester, you, you become really open my, open to having your mind changed. Is there anything that would shock me, Jimmy, that you'd be like, Coleman, I changed my mind on this? Uh, you know,
1: <clears throat> the first thing that comes to mind is probably the one that, that you should talk about, I think, uh, or I should talk about, but there, there were quite a few things actually. Uh, for example, going into, I always fancied myself a bit of a philosophical guy and I spent a lot of time reading, you know, the Stoics, mm-hmm. you know, um,
0: long before it Admiral, became cool.
1: Right. Admiral Stockdale was like a hero of mine. And, yeah. uh, and so, I had this idea that the Stoics had it all figured out and I remember sitting in philosophy class with this brilliant professor (laughs) who was from Oxford, 30 years he taught philosophy at Oxford and just an amazing human being. He used to sneak into the former Soviet Union back when it could get you shot and teach philosophy classes underground in smoky rooms in places like... The former Yugoslavia and Czechoslovakia like he's that committed to it and, and Aristotle in particular but when we got to the Stoics I realized that they are I found them a bit lacking when hmm. it comes to that scenario I just talked about earlier well it's none of my business what happened to that kid well is it <laughs> isn't it a little bit of my business I mean I'm a human <laughs> being and uh, you know yeah I don't speak his language uh, you know but he's a, he's a human being. He's a child. These things have happened, and do I need to trouble myself with it? I think the Stoics generally would say, no, it's not your business. It doesn't affect you. And I disagree with that. So, yeah, that mm-hmm. was probably that one. And then with that young woman that I sat next to at the discussion we were having with this author from a think tank, uh, that she's from the south side of Chicago, African-American. Friends of hers have been shot and killed, gang violence, by you know, police violence, <clears throat> meaning there were violent things going on and the police engaged and were part of it. She is outspoken, Black Lives Matter, community organizer. Like not the kind of people I hang out with. <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <clears throat> but she leads with her chest, meaning her heart, and she yeah. I sat next to her at that meeting and she's the one that used the term safe space. Mm. And, and dude, I almost had a seizure when she said that because I had this idea in my head of what the people who use that term safe space, you know, it's pretty distasteful to a guy like me, but I'm sitting next to this young woman and she brings it up. And I thought it shocked me. Hmm. She doesn't need a safe space, dude. She's, she's She's fine fine having a discussion. She's fine. She didn't need anybody to coddle her or make her comfortable, make sure her feelings, dude, she's just not like that. Like at all. She wasn't, she didn't need that, but she used that term. And, and then, you know, the discussion went on and I talked to her later and I, and I was, I said, you know, just from where I come from, this is safe space. And she's like, yeah, it's just a figure of speech. You know, it's, What she was referring to is, hey, we're sitting in a room talking about – let's just use Aristotle again and his idea that some people are born natural slaves. And I Mm -hmm. think that carries a certain amount of weight for a guy like me. It carries a different kind of weight for a young woman like her. But we're sitting in the room together talking about it. And the specific thing that changed my mind there was this idea that I understood – language and the way that people referred to things that we all do it the same way. And that's just not the case.
0: Um, Jimmy, you have a, uh, you have a comment in your article that, uh, your professor of philosophy, it might be the same one, uh, told you once that a good leader is a bridge builder. And you say, professor David Charles is a man who has been teaching bright young people and some slow and old ones like me, the most difficult subject for me at Oxford and now Yale, meaning philosophy. Yeah. Um, and you say here you thought haha i've got him fooled it turns out i didn't fool him at all when i turned in my first paper can but you say that's another story for another time can you tell us the story of that first paper
1: yeah i mean i just didn't get it you know <laughs> he's like yeah you, you wrote but you didn't really get it you know i mean he just and you know his interesting um he talked about the differences between the education system in the UK and here. And then in the UK, he was a tutor Mm. and in in his word, he was not an assessor. So his job wasn't to give you grades. His job was to teach you so that when you took the test, you would do well at it. He did not give you the test or grade the test. He was not responsible in any way for evaluating your performance. Mm. So, which I thought was really interesting. And he said what that did is it created an environment where if, if the students didn't get something, they'd be like, hey, no, listen, I'm not getting it. You're going to have to try a different way. Mm. You, you know, his job was to shape your thoughts so that you understood the things that you were talking about. So kids didn't approach him the same way that we would a, a professor say, Yale, yeah, where you're like, hey, that's the guy who's giving me my grades. I'm mm. not going to bug him. I'm not going to piss him off. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to waste his time. He approached it differently. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the truth is most of the professors, you know, are the same way. They're like, no, I'm here to make sure you understand this. But, you know, it was pretty amazing. And so when I took, when I wrote my paper and I came in and he was the kind of guy who, like, Hey, I want to talk to you about your paper after. Like everybody had to go in and talk to him just a few minutes. He'd set up schedule, meet you. He's like, yeah, um, you didn't really get it. (laughs) And I was like. Oh no! Uh, just funny.
0: What was the paper about, and what did you not get, Jimmy? Just in general.
1: I, I think that that particular paper was on anger and uh, oh my gosh, Roman guy. Uh, no, 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 that wasn't the first paper. That was the second one. I can't even remember what the paper yeah. was. What that paper was.
0: You I can them. tell you
1: what. I can tell you what my last paper was. Was writing for. Uh, Edmund Burke talked about the utility of religion in government, and we had to compare what he thought with three other authors that we read. So I used Hannah Arendt, de Tocqueville, and uh, Machiavelli, which was interesting. Ooh. So anyway, that didn't answer your question, but I was trying to impress you with something else.
0: No, that's awesome, Jimmy. I love it. I was just so curious about your last you know, six months and your last year. Just, I know we keep in touch with each other in weird ways social media text email whatever through some mutual friends from time to time and watching you at least from afar you know do this at an institution like Yale is really you know late in life it's weird it's not hard to get inspired by things but you know in in the groups in which we've been fortunate enough to move around guys will do some crazy stuff and you'll be like yeah that's pretty normal but when you when you made the jump over to Yale, I was just so curious about it, and I think it's really exciting, and uh, it's inspiring to me, and I know it's inspiring to other people. So that's great. Thanks for giving us the background. Of course, you, well, we really oh, we want to talk about a lot of things today, but I want to move into the topic of uh, residue, this paper that we wrote, of course, but it's really much more than a paper. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a start of a conversation that is potentially in its infancy in our communities uh, or a conversation that wasn't happening at all for a long time. And not, not for any you know, negative reason necessarily. It's just not something any of us addressed you know, forever. You know, When I say forever, I can't speak pre-9-11, but I think about you know from, nine, from September 11, 2001, at least till I got out of the Navy, which was the fall of 2011, I don't know that I ever had a conversation with any human being about what's life going to be like after all of the things that we all, you know, went through together, both positive and negative. I just left. And reading your book, Jimmy, Touching the Dragon, I couldn't believe you wrote this paragraph in here. I'm not going to read the quote, but you wrote... In your book Touching the Dragon, a section that is almost verbatim, what I wrote in one of my notes and you know journals about transition, which is this idea that you can put in that a human can put in years and years and years and hundreds of thousands of calories and effort and mind share and energy into the job that we do. And in one afternoon, you get a DD two fourteen you turn in your badge, and you walk out the gate. And that is a startling concept when you really <laughs> slow down and think about it. And um, yeah. so what I'd like to do is back all the way up, and I consider you and a lot of other people in a really unique category, which is you came into special operations you know, way before it was in the media and way before it was cool. And so if you could just bring, I just would like to bring the audience up to speed. Where did Jimmy Hatch start? How did you get to you know how did you get to where you got to so i
1: i I joined the the military the day I turned seventeen. The army reserves had this program where you could go to boot camp and in my case, I went to boot camp and then jump school at uh fort Benning boot mm. camp in uh, Fort Leonardwood, Missouri, and then jump school at Fort Benning and then I went back and was supposed to finish my senior year which i I decided not to but uh, yeah, I was making great choices. But uh, I went to boot camp and then I went to jump school. while well, I was in jump school. So I wanted to be a Green Beret. I grew up, I was born in 67. So I remember watching the last few years of the Vietnam War. And then at the time, you know how there's been so many SEAL movies and stuff like that now. But back then, it was Green Beret stuff. Like the Green Berets were yeah. it. Apocalypse Now. Went, yeah. yeah. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. So I just wanted to be a Green Beret. And I went to, I got through boot camp. Which was hilarious. I mean, I grew up in Utah. Uh, The only African-Americans in Utah were the Utah Jazz. And I didn't talk to those guys much. So I joined the military. And my drill sergeant was from Puerto Rico. I'd never met anybody from Puerto Rico. And I couldn't understand him. And I had this really bad flaw. When I get really nervous, i laugh. And that is not what you do with a drill sergeant. I was like, "Ah!" he's like, what are you laughing at? It was a pretty (laughs) rough start for me. It was awesome, it was a great education. Uh, I then went to jump school and when I was there, I was a pretty good runner. I grew up in the mountains and I weighed like a buck 50 and I I could run. And um, I was the guide on bearer and the company commander was a captain, he was a ranger. And so to me, he's like a God, you know, and he liked to run fast. So he'd pull me with him on some of those hill runs. He'd say, come on. And we'd take off and he'd talk to me. Uh, And towards the end of the training, he's like, Hatch, you know, have you ever heard about the Navy SEALs? And I said, nah, why do I care about those fucking guys, you know? (laughs) And uh, he's like, well, they're kind of crazy. And I think you might like fit in. yeah, and so I didn't know anything, so I went home. We didn't have the internet, so I got this thing uh, called an encyclopedia, and I started looking through it and doing research, and I got crazy and went to a Navy recruiter, and I'll never forget the guy's name. Cecil Kessler was his name. He was a first class, and I said, hey, man, I'm in the reserves. I want to go active duty in the Navy. He's like, "It's going to be a lot of work. We can do it, and I said, yep, I want to be a Navy SEAL. So
0: What year is this, Jimmy?
1: That was '80 started in eighty four okay, yeah so uh eighty five I you know the paperwork gets on uh, the Navy makes me go through Navy boot camp again, I get in um, went to Corman school, I thought I'll well, be in a medical be cool uh, two weeks shy of graduation, me and a couple other dudes took home some scrubs. we got in trouble, went to captain's mass, I got shit canned from school, we got sent to the fleet, <laughs> you know.
2: Uh, oh my god. It
1: was a decade. Yeah, it was great. And um, applied to go to Bud's, went to Bud's, got to Hell Week. Um,
0: Which class were you, Jimmy?
1: That was 141.
0: 141.
1: Yeah. Uh, guys like, I won't drop names in here, but yeah. you know,
0: some pretty, there's some pretty
1: significant guys that are still in the community and have done a lot in the community that were in that class. But hell week starts sunday laying there in the surf didn't have a lot of confidence and the biggest guy in the class gets up and he was a big dude and he'd done the iron man and he was a severe stud like badass he gets up and he quits and i'm like yep holy shit if that guy doesn't have any business here i, I sure as hell don't have any business so me and like 10 other idiots get up and we quit it was ridiculous and uh I realized pretty quickly that I'd made a mistake, but the Navy, you know, sent me to a ship and I don't know why people go on cruises, Coleman, because a ship is like (laughs) jail, except you can drown. I don't get it, man. Especially now, right? Like every week there's something, you know, you can't get off the boat. Everybody's sick. I'm not interested. Yeah, no, No, I'd rather go ahead and just get shot again, I think, than go on a cruise. But anyway, the, I, I developed some character, went back to Bud's, made it through in, uh, I graduated with class 164. Okay which was cool. Uh, went to SEAL Team 8, they had just started SEAL Team 8 and that was in January of 1990. And then uh, did a few deployments, screened to go to dev group. Uh, I started out as a boat guy, we didn't have SWIC guys then. Mm. So me and a bunch of other guys, Dave Cooper, who I mentioned, uh, some of the guys, they're actually still around. <clears throat> we went through, at the time, uh, the boat, Green Team, which was yep. brutal. Like the boats just beat your ass. It's like a four-hour car wreck every time you drive them. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and then, you know, the, the deal was you had to wait three years and then go through Green Team again. So we did, a uh, bunch of us.
0: Uh, did what year in, was that, Jimmy? 97. You went through the 97? 94,
1: I went through Gray. And then 97, I went through Green Team. Now, I think Tommy was the one right before that Okay.
0: One. Gotcha. I'm pretty sure. Uh,
1: he wasn't in my green team. And then, and I was like, not the top performer. I mean, I was on my best day. I was average, <laughs> but again, you know, it's like, uh, you know, you show up to work. You want to be with people like that, that are going to make you better. You know, uh, I went to the went to the squadron and then um, spent some time there from 97 to 2000. Yeah. Um, I was like, I really liked skydiving, and there wasn't anything going on. And I thought, man, maybe I'm going to go out and try out for the jump team. So, tried no. out for the jump team. Yeah, went to the jump team in 2000. Uh, at the end of 2000, 2001. I was in a. I went through their winter training, which was cool. I love jumping. I'd never been to a baseball game in my life, like a real major league baseball game. My first baseball game, I jumped into the Dodgers opener in Chavez Ravine. It was amazing. Wow. Um, shortly after that, I got in an accident. Uh, which was pretty significant, broke my back hmm. and was in a coma or state of unconsciousness for like a week, messed up my brain pretty good. And it was in, I want to say the end of April. So uh, I was paralyzed on my right side for a while and I had to go through, I had to learn how to do a whole bunch of different things again. The hmm. head injury was similar to a stroke. I was I was put in a program with some stroke patients. This is funny, man. My wife would take me, drop me off, come get me at the end of the day, you know, go to parent-teacher conference. It was hilarious. <clears throat> and then I got uh, – it was time for the Navy to decide what they were going to do with me. And the guy who was the neurosurgeon that took my case was a team guy in Vietnam. He, he was a hmm. chief. Uh, he got out and flew F-15s for the Air Force, did that for a few years, and then became – a doctor Interesting. so yeah so I went to see him I thought they were gonna put me out of the Navy I'd I healed up pretty good and I could I could function and and he said hey man what do you you know what do you want to do and I said I you know I want to go back to work. at this point 9-11 it happened so so
0: you were you there Jimmy when Gus Kaminsky came through
1: I was at the end of my tour he, he came through yep.
0: He was my first platoon commander at team three
1: yeah rest his soul man yep. it, yeah yeah
0: uh super good guy. Awesome guy.
1: Anyway, the the guy said, "Hey man, I'll put you back on." Uh, but let me hear what your wife has to say." And then she's like, "Yeah, whatever he wants to do." So, uh I got in trouble shortly thereafter I, I had a pretty bad, you know, with head injuries, we didn't know at the time, there's a lot of anger involved. Mm. And I had some good frontal lobe head injury, and I told basically told my leadership to fuck off one day in front of everybody. That that doesn't go well in the no. Navy, so they had to essentially send me somewhere else. So I went to Yuma to be part of the skydiving cadre there, the free fall cadre. Mm. And I didn't care for the army at all the way they do business, but I did work with some really, really good dudes and I learned a lot. And jumping is, you know, I love jumping. I learned a lot. I worked with Marines, uh, Rangers, SF guys, uh, a lot of Air Force guys. It was cool. And I begged Tommy, the master chief, I kept, you know, calling him and, you know, cause I knew my buddies were deploying. And so finally I got to come back at the end of 2004.
0: And end of 04.
1: Yeah. And then I did my first deployment, uh, in 2005.
0: And then can you, can you give me a brief summary? So I got there in 06 and mm-hmm. what were, well, I know what we were all up to, right. Between oh five and oh nine, but right. If you can get us up to July of 2009, you don't have to go into any obvious, you know, detail about ops and stuff like that, but just your experience. I'll tell you though,
1: I'd like to back up a little bit because I don't know that there's been enough said about this and this isn't specific to the SEAL teams or our former unit in particular, but to everybody that transitioned from the time in the military where we were carrying IVs in our pocket and, you know. To the guys who deployed after 9-11 and the learning curve that those, whether they were Army or Navy, the learning curve that they went through was significant. There were a lot of changes that happened really quickly and those guys suffered for for it. And it wasn't anybody's fault. It's just we didn't know what we didn't know. So guys are carrying all this stuff next thing you know, you're at, on a mountain in Afghanistan at 10,000 feet and that shit don't fly. You know what I mean? Like, Pretty soon you figure out all you need is bullets and water, right? So those guys, that particular part of our history was, you know, the guys who trained us, and I don't know if this is true for you, but a lot of them were Vietnam guys mm-hmm. or guys that had didn't have any combat experience whatsoever. Yeah. So it was very different from what you know, was needed at the time, but everybody's doing their best. I just take my hat off to
0: those guys. Yeah. One of my recollections, Jimmy, tra- in training, um, well, pre 9-11 on this idea of like who trained you, I have this memory of checking into team three and the first, this is in the, the spring of 99, the first set of trips we did to Nyland, California or whatever um, inside the, the training pre-briefs and all these other things, right? The cadre are like inserting these stories. And I thought they were telling real stories. (laughs) They were all training stories, you know, which is, which is totally normal. I'm not taking a shot at them, but I was so naive. I thought every single guy had had some secret combat experience that we didn't know about. And then, 9-11 9-11 happens and, and things really start to spool up. And I'm I'm not at, I'm not at damn neck, right? I'm at team three and yeah. I'm looking around at the training cell who I had thought had all these real experiences and there was some buffoonery going on with like, like you mentioned, like what people were carrying and how things were going to happen overseas. And that transition alone was, was pretty interesting.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it was. It was also interesting to me. Uh, and this is, you know, take it for what it is but there were a lot of i've i was surprised at the number of people in the organizations in special warfare who talked big talk and when it was time to go to work they found something else to do oh, and yeah. it was shocking to me actually and i mean whatever <laughs> i think people do things for different reasons but that's something i don't think it's enough coverage yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of chest there's a lot of chest beating out there but you know there needs to be some reality alongside it like there's people who didn't like the real thing. They liked the training. They liked the shiny badges, but they didn't like the ugly stuff. Uh,
0: yeah. So, Jimmy, um, if you're willing, uh, particularly for the audience so we can get into, you know, residue a little bit, which mm-hmm. is a, there's a lot to cover there, is if you could talk about um, July 2009, the, you know, the operation where you were wounded, where Remco was killed and yeah. just take us through the mechanics of that a little bit. So people know what we're talking about. Yeah. Let me lead up to it. So
1: 2005, I did my first deployment back and that was the loan, sur- you know, the big thing that happened then. There wasn't a lot going on, but the loan survivor thing went down and I was part of the crew that went up there to pick those guys or okay. to look for them initially. And, you know, it was us and some Rangers and, um, those guys are fucking tough. The yeah. Rangers. Oh yeah. Um, uh, and we, Went up there and we got to – I remember it pretty vividly. We got to the crash site in the morning just as the sun was coming up and I don't know who made the decision. But the rangers were like, we're going to go down there and get the bodies because the bodies had gone down this big ravine. It was super steep. It was almost 11,000 feet. It was way up in the mountains. And and Anyway, we walked around looking for people and trying to figure out what had happened. I remember we stood – um where the bad guys were shooting at our guys and i you know were piles of brass it was a bad it was a very bad situation and you know i knew what had happened prior to that and the discussions you know kind of the not the deep deep down dirty discussions that were had but a lot of the just kind of off the cuff discussions that were had about those guys doing you know that mission that they went on had tried there were people who tried to sell it to us and our leadership was like oh yeah we we'll, we'll we can do that, but this is what we'll need. And they're like, Oh, you know, I don't know if we need, you know, so essentially it was ill-advised. And I remember those guys, the body bags. And I, I remember, um, I remember the guy I did it with. I remember putting Eric Christensen's body on, on the helicopter. We had to blow some trees down and get that helicopter in there to get those guys. And, you know, Eric Christensen was a very big dude. He was the biggest dude. And I remember, you know, putting his body on that helicopter and I didn't know how to deal with that. So that's, that's there's some residual residue. Uh, and I was very critical and angry. And that was my default emotion, right? Like, oh, these guys are fucked up. This is, you know, uh, and then I remember when the helicopters came to get uh, Marcus, I was standing there, I watched the helicopters land, I'm standing next to a CCT guy and, and the helicopters took off. And I said, man, that guy's gonna write a book and make a million dollars. Uh, and of course he did, and there was a movie and a bunch of other stuff, but things happened, uh, you know, kept going on deployments, Iraq, Afghanistan, um, Captain Phillips, some of those kind of things that were in the news. Um, 2009, Bo Bergdahl walks off base. We were actually in the Death Star in Bagram when that happened. And so there was, I don't know, probably seven or eight of us there. And, uh, Intel guys walked up and handed us, you know, information, ISO prep card, and then kind of the details of what happened, you know, what they knew. They didn't know much, but this kid had walked off base and I remember handing it to the guy next to me who was alpha two <laughs> um, now a rather infamous author and saying, Hey man, this somebody's going to get killed or hurt bad trying to find this kid. You know, so fast forward about a week, we got, Enough intel to go out and do a mission. And we'd actually canceled the mission that night because the conditions were so poor that there was a high likelihood that we would get the helicopter shot down or, uh, you know, multiple helicopters shot down. So we canceled the mission that night. But then about 30 minutes after we canceled, we got the intel um, that motivated us to, you know, we all agreed, hey, man, you know, you've got an American hostage. Yeah, he's an idiot, but he's still an American and we're going to yeah. do what we got to do. So um we knew it was gonna be pretty heavy and we got as we were landing I could see the gunners the door gunners like you know, I was on a helicopter that was not closest to the point where we were taking fire so the helicopter off to our other side was shooting I couldn't hear them because the helicopters so loud but I could see tracers kind of coming past the back of the helicopter mm-hmm. so I knew we were on it. Uh, it took us a few minutes to get going and then I had to split up the crew so it was myself and a dog handler it who was, it was fairly new, and the dog Remco was fairly new, and then one other shooter. And uh, the other guys went to a different part of the target. It was were super dynamic. And again, it's a hostage rescue mission. And for those who are not you know, uh, familiar with that, it, the hostage rescue mission is, I believe, most, the most difficult because you have to expose yourself, you have to be aggressive, and you can't just shoot people. You got to know who's who in the zoo, and um, that means getting close and figuring things out. Uh, so there was a couple guys, probably three, four hundred meters away, and We'd done some we'd been in a few skirmishes uh after we'd split up, and I could see the two guys moving they had obviously they had a lot of stuff on, but I couldn't tell so we hunkered down for a second in this field flat field and uh they didn't get back up. they had actually knelt down themselves. I didn't know it at the time uh I was hoping they'd move towards us, but they they didn't. So it turns out what they were doing was setting up a pretty mean fighting position in a ditch. <clears throat> anyway, you know, in those hostage rescue mission, man, you know, it's 30 seconds feels like two hours. Yeah. You know, Cause they can kill you. They can kill your guy, you know, anytime. So yep. I waited a little bit and I said, Hey man, let's go get him. So we got up, put the dog out in front of us. And this is something that, you know, as a dog handler, I'd done some deployments as a dog handler and, uh, You know, the dog's senses are going to help you, you know, Mm -hmm. anyway, the dog, we started moving in the direction to where we last kind of saw him. We had lined up perfectly into the wind. So the dog had, you know, he had the, he had the scent, uh, and I was waiting for him to hit it. I was watching the dog. Uh, we couldn't really see all that well. It was not a good night for night vision. And all of a sudden the dog's body language changed and I'd seen it a bunch and I knew we were getting ready to to roll. And, you know, the dog buys you a, a couple of seconds max, sometimes a half second but you have to make some decisions. Uh, the dog started to kind of go up on a, a little bit of a rise and then boom, boom, he got shot in the head twice with an AK-47 from like six inches away. And I watched his body kind of flop up and back. And when the guy shot him, I could see because of the muzzle flash that he was definitely not an American. So I started filling him in. And when I started shooting him, uh, I, I, yeah, I was, I was using an MP7 and he wasn't like going down. I was, my laser was on his face and I was, you yeah, know, I was really close to him, um, probably, 15, 20 feet. And he wasn't going down. He wasn't shooting anymore, but he wasn't going down. And then his buddy, I don't remember it, but his buddy emptied his AK, just sprayed like, you know, like they always do. They don't have any discipline and they don't give a shit about innocent people. They just, they get scared and spray. It hit me in the leg, blew my femur out the back of my leg, sent me in the air. I remember thinking, don't scream, don't scream, don't scream as I hit the ground. When I hit the ground, of course, you know, I started
2: ah! screaming and I was,
1: <laughs> you know, 20 feet from these guys i i thought i was done for sure i heard my buddies in between the screams uh i heard them uh doing business you know finishing things up i could hear the bad guys circling the drain kind of coughing and uh i could hear their suppressors uh and then you know I remember yelling about the dog, Um, and then the other shooter put the dog handler kind of on watch, came over to me, and I had my tourniquet on my chest, and every time I moved to try to get to it, uh, it would twist my hip, and then I would, the bone in my leg would twist, and it would, I mean, it hurt so bad, dude, that I would start screaming, and I was like, I can't be screaming anymore because I can't get people's attention where we're at, you know? So I just laid there. So the other shooter got over to me. I said, hey man, put your tourniquet on me. And he did, you know? Uh, And then while I was screaming, I had hit my Prestatox. So a couple other dudes heard that and they were both guys who'd been to 18 Delta. So the Army, the Green Beret Special Operations, Medic School, they both knew I needed help because we were so spread out. So both of them came to me over some open ground in a pretty good gunfight. And One of them had to shoot some dudes to get to me. I could hear his suppressor as he was coming in. They got there. Immediately, they're both like, Hey, you need to shut the fuck up. And I said, Hey, man, I've been shot. You can't talk to me like that. They didn't care, man. So they shoved their knees in my back and pushed all the air out of my lungs. They went to work on me. And then they rolled me, they were going to roll me over. And they told me, Hey, Jimmy, we got to roll you over. And I said, No, because every time I moved, it, that leg would just fucking shoot. I was like, You can't, you can't, can't. And they're like, You got to shut up. We're going to roll you over. And they just jammed their knees into my back pushed all the air out of my lungs and flipped me over. And of course I was screaming. Um, helicopters came, um, landed pretty close, the one that landed. And I mean, those dudes, man, I got to do a speech for those guys. And um, there were four guys that were on that bird the night that I got rescued that were in that s- speech. It was their their annual formal. So their wives and you know, they were there and our, their families, you know, like us, our families didn't know what we did and talk about it. I got to be a guy who stood up there and whose life had been saved in part by their efforts. You know, um, that was pretty amazing. And they had dropped us off in a shitty gunfight on a really bad night. And those dudes did not hesitate. Imagine that, man. Like think about that for the people who have never been in this type of situation. Imagine the worst night of your life and it's dangerous and You're going to die if you don't get out of there. But you know in your heart, hey, I know those guys are going to come get me. Never did I question that. Think about that kind of a resource. You know, it's just like that's a pretty big deal. Anyway, so they picked me up, took me to a little field hospital. And I remember pogo sticking it on my left leg and I had my arm around the guy I call the fly fisherman. And I started to pass out. I, I ended up taking 14 units of blood, which I guess is quite a bit. I started to kind of get dizzy and started to pass out. And he's like, dude, I can't carry your fat ass. I need you to, you know, make it to the door. I can see the door. So I pulled together some gumption. We get in the door. Dude skinned me with those emergency scissors. I'm flat naked. They throw me on this stainless steel table like I'm a pork chop or something. And then uh, I'm laying there and I can see the dog handler carrying Remco. It was clear to me that he was dead. He'd been working on Remco on the helicopter. Um, the fly fisherman who was with me had also worked on Remco. It was clear to everybody that the dog was dead, but the dog handler, Mike Toussaint, who's a public person, so I can use his name. He wasn't giving up, you know? And, uh, once they got me on the table, they started dealing with him and the fly fisherman. And I remember waving to the fly fisherman and I was like, Hey man, Tell these people not to laugh at my junk. It's cold in here. <laughs> like, what? Who thinks about? It? Apparently, that's not unusual. I'm told by different medical people. So the doctor, she looks at me and she's like, "That's it." Boom! I get a mask over my face and I'm out, and I don't remember anything after that until I woke up a few days later. Bumped to a diff- few different hospitals on my way home to DC, and then I just really started to spiral at that point. And you know, I think the residue. Was something that I had not even considered, truthfully. We just didn't, I mean, it's what we did, and everybody around us did that. So we didn't think that it was abnormal or that there was anything really problematic about it. Um, really ignorant <laughs> on my part. But as I'm laying there in the hospital and I had 18 surgeries on that leg, um, you know, drugs going through me, I couldn't sleep. I was. All that stuff started to come back, and in particular for me, the most difficult thing for me, and it's part of the reason I brought up the Lone Survivor stuff, is some of the things that I was very critical about with the way they did their mission, I had to wear that same criticism myself, and it didn't feel good.
0: Were you putting it on yourself, Jimmy, or was somebody else putting it on you?
1: Oh, no, no. no I, I put it on myself, but it was – you know, I'm, I'm fairly good at this thing called cognitive behavioral therapy now. And, you know, these feelings, are they valid? Is this the facts? But the facts were, I felt like those guys took unnecessary risks in a lot of ways, and it cost people their lives. That simple. I believed that, well, I mean, just, just the facts. I get hurt. At the point I get hurt, I was being aggressive. Um, there was criticism of by my own guys who I love, and they were like, you know, you're a dumbass, (laughs) which, you know, they're my friends. I love them. Got it. Um, I was being aggressive, doing what I thought I needed to do based on my experience and, you know, the training that I'd gone through. And boom, I get hurt. Once I get hurt, everybody's at risk. Uh, Guys have to cover open ground to try to stop me from bleeding to death. Uh, The helicopters have to come back in. Same, some of the similar details that that occurred on the lone survivor thing. And that was really difficult. It took me a while to get comfortable with it. It took me years, actually. It took me a couple of years to forgive myself for screaming, which was ridiculous. And then it, I had to, under, you know, there were definitely differences between the mission that I got hurt on and lone survivor stuff. But the facts were that guys were being aggressive. They got hurt or killed in their case. And People risked their lives to try to save them, and they got killed. And that, to me, that's where I, I held it. Now, the difference is when you bring those other little details in, it changes the dynamic. But I still had to wear that criticism, and I didn't like it. And I did take it on myself, and uh, I was ashamed because I felt truthfully that you know we worked in a no-fail environment. And I felt like the, when I got hurt, it changed the dynamics of the mission. They had to get the fat guy who's screaming out of there and then continue on. And we never, we didn't get to rescue that guy. So I felt for years that it was completely my fault and there's no way to say that that's true or not. Um, and sometimes I actually, I still revisit, I like eh, you know if I'd have done that, but it doesn't make any sense. And at the end of the day, it's a gunfight and everybody with a gun gets a vote. So there are variables in there that you can't control, which is difficult for guys like us who spend so much time trying to make sure that we conduct ourselves in the best possible way in those circumstances. Uh, it's difficult to say, well, there's luck involved. Um, we don't believe that, but there is.
0: Yeah, you know, it's an interesting thing, Jimmy. I mean, I I understand the mentality that we carry about we treat everything like a no-fail mission. I, the, la- the language matters. Treating everything like a no-fail mission matters. But you and I and everybody else who's in our business knows that we fail all the time. And yeah. we fail because it's an ultra-complex environment that has – multi-factor inputs that many, many, many people, just like you didn't control where the bullet went when so-and-so got up and sprayed his AK-47. There's so many things we don't control. We, we risk mitigate the best we can, but it's really dangerous pulling a thread on this, how we end up with this certain amount of residue from our experiences, both good and bad is when we assign or when we continue to assign All my missions were no-fail missions. Well, you know, Tommy V and I had this conversation in Bakuba when Mark, when Badger was killed, which was in December of 2007, and a few other guys who were in the recce element, you know, who were still serving, you you know all of them. Uh, One of the guys that evening when we got back to the base, you know, recce guy walks up to me and says, Coleman, I think tonight, I think Badger's death was my fault. I'm like, because I, I should have known, right? Because we're first in. And I think what ends up happening, because we treat them all like a no-fail mission, is the first thing we do is we start assigning self-blame. Responsibility. That, yeah, like yeah. because, in the only not the only reason, but one of the reasons we do that is because we weren't supposed to fail. Well, no kidding, we weren't supposed to fail. Nobody got off the helicopter like hatching reasons to fail. There was just a set of circumstances that, you know, occurred. And do people make mistakes? Yeah. Sometimes we make tactical errors. Most of the time, not though. Most of the time it's a set of circumstances that are just more complex than any human can handle. Right. And so, um, yeah, I just think that's a reality. And I think it's one of the things that contributes to these burdens that, that we carry. And, and by the way, Coleman Ruiz's opinion is we shouldn't assign, you know, what I consider like, whatever special operations, exceptionalism. When we do a great job is like, Oh, we're cause we're awesome. No, because like you, you got the lucky side of the karma this time, you know, you did everything yeah. about the same. Um, so anyway, you know I, what's, go ahead.
1: I, I would I just like to throw just to further emphasize your point here. I remember I was out in Arizona with a bunch of guys jumping when that happened yep. and you guys relieved us. Yeah. And I know that house and we knew that neighborhood and we'd been there Yep. and there we were like, if we did, if we'd have been successful, this would not have happened. <laughs> like even, even back in the States, you know, we're like, I know right where that was. I know, yep. you know, I know the target. I like, and we're, we're like, fuck,
0: fuck, you know? <laughs> and what happened to the next group, Jimmy? Same thing. So the guys yeah. who relieved us, it was the same area, the same neighborhood. And I remember talking to, you know, the platoon, the, the troop chief and the, and the guys that relieved us and the three troops, the three of us could have had the same conversation and the cold, hard faxes, we were all doing actually a really damn good job in that area at that time in a really shitty set of circumstances.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Those were some, those were some hard dudes.
0: Um, yeah, so you get back to the US, finally, you're in the hospital, you mentioned, you know, well, the things you've already mentioned. And I want to pick almost the first line that I highlighted out of the introduction of your book, Touching the Dragon. which you say here, I became an again, back to this alien concept, I became an alien, cultivated a psycho, which cultivated a psychological division in this requirement to reintegrate into society. And what was going on for you, Jimmy, besides the stuff we've discussed in terms of the operation and how you feel, when, when did you realize, and it might've even come later than the first couple of months back, but when did you realize I, I am going to have to reintegrate back into the regular world? I can no longer, this is Coleman words, Coleman's words, not Jimmy's. I can no longer hide inside the wire of our insular units where I'm protected and safe I'm going to have to go out into the wild. Yeah, I got to be
1: honest, man. It was super frightening. And, you know, I had, uh, like everybody, I have a certain level of arrogance and I had a level, a very high level of arrogance. Uh, I felt generally that if you hadn't, if I hadn't been in a gunfight with you or if I didn't have a friend like Lou who'd work with you that said, yeah, he's solid. I didn't really have any time for you, and I didn't really give a fuck what you had to say, and I didn't think you really cared about what we had going on, and I just didn't find any use for it. And then meaning it being this the kind of the culture. I remember um, every veteran who's been in combat has this you know, happen where you're standing in a store somewhere and you're like, you know this was insane. like look at these people. I just it frightened me and and not only was I afraid, and I didn't want to think of it as fear at the time for sure, because I just didn't know how like to conduct myself there, the things that mattered to the most of the people here I did, I could give a shit about you know they weren't important to me and and then I turned that to I'm a monster. I really liked killing people. I, you know, I'm concerned with punishing these people overseas that want to do harm, um, and everything else doesn't matter. Uh, it, I, I did not have a way. I, I never thought about it, and I'd never considered it, and never really addressed the idea that at some point this is going to be over in one way or another. And, you know, that was, that was dumb. <laughs> so really what it came down to was, and you know, I could blame this a bit on the meds uh, and some of the, the physical pain that I had. Uh, you know, there was no manual, Hey, what to do when you're wounded, but a guy named Jay Redman, he basically did that. He came over to our house. I didn't know who the fuck he was. Yeah. And he, they called my wife and said, "Hey, we'd like to come visit." And I was wounded, and uh, you know, I think we have some things that can help you. And I'm like, I don't know that guy, but okay, cool. So he comes over and he comes in. I'm like, "Hey, man, what happened to your face?" He's like, "I got shot in the face." I was like, "What?" <laughs> anyway, he was kind of legendary at the time, and I didn't know that because he'd written that stuff that you know the president had yep. taken – you know, President Bush had taken on board. I mean, he's, the guy was amazing, and he gave me a notebook, and he's like, "These are the things. These are the numbers you call. These are the you know the, to get your pace. You know, blah 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 blah." But the guy – and I was like, yeah, whatever. And he said, look, there's going to be some darkness. And here's my phone number. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> he knew it. I just honestly What, what did you not. think
0: was going to happen, Jimmy? You thought you were just going to grin and bear it and like some yeah. positive result was going to happen?
1: Yes, 100%. I was like, well, I mean, I'll just figure it out, <laughs> you know. Uh and I remember, you know, because I lost some of the use of my foot, uh, you know, I, I knew and nobody – they were very careful. The doctors were pros. They were very careful to say, oh, you'll never do this again or you'll never do that again. But I knew that, you know, coming from the environment that we came from, if you can't carry your weight, you've got to kind of let people know because we rely on each other so much that you can't let each other down by – Going into a situation where you're not able to do your job as best as you can do it, so I knew that I could no longer function like that, and it—I didn't know what was going to happen after that. And I remember, you know, guys saying, "Hey, look, we can find stuff for you to do here," and I was like, "No, there's no way I can do this. I just—I can't do it anymore." And so at that point, I'd lost my identity because that's who I was, you know. As I said earlier, I hadn't put any thought to it, and so. I thought, okay, I'm, who am I? What do I have to offer? Well, I got nothing. I mean, the only things that I was good at and that was average, but I was rolling with a bunch of good people was doing those missions and I loved it. And I felt like I had meaning and I felt like I could contribute and that I was an asset. And given the, given the question, okay, what are you going to do now? How are you going to be an asset? I didn't have, it was it's, really, it was courage. I didn't have the courage to say, okay, I got to pull myself up and figure out how to do things. Um, and that idea, you know, and that, and that translates across cultural lines. It's not just a special operations thing. Oh, yeah. But this idea that, this idea that somebody who's struggling with something, whether it's poverty or hunger or uh, mental health, oh, you just got to pick yourself up by your bootstraps and continue on. You know, that's just a big line of bullshit that unfortunately I think gets people killed. And I think I was fortunate in that I had people around me, some of them I knew well. Uh, most of them I didn't, who kept injecting themselves into my life. And anyway, I got to a point where I was suicidal. And I used this line in my speeches and uh, probably the best line I've ever come up with. Um, cops came to my house and I remember my wife on the phone with them. And she's telling them kind of who I am and my background and, you know, 911 operator. So I'm, I'm like, OK, these guys are going to come over here and they're going to want to be they're gonna wanna brawl and I'm fucking down with that. <laughs> in fact, maybe I can get them to shoot me in the head because I didn't have the fucking you know minerals to do it myself. So <laughs> these guys come up, I'm sitting on my front porch and I'm watching them and watching them like a green team instructor, like, okay. <laughs> see what you and yeah, and they were pros and they were cool. And they got up on this porch and they started talking to me. And they the cops call it verbal judo. Next thing I know, we're talking about baseball. And I got the distinct impression, and I think it was Toni Morrison who said, you know, people aren't going to remember what you did for them, but they're going to remember how you made them feel. And, dude, I felt like those guys gave a shit and really wanted me to be okay. So my saying is never underestimate your ability to affect the trajectory of another human life, especially at their most vulnerable moment. That's what those guys did for me. I wouldn't be talking to you today. I could have been sent to jail, which would have sent me into a tailspin, and God knows what would have happened. You know, I had and I had it coming. They, they at least could have given me a good tasing. You know, <laughs> those guys changed my trajectory. And the you know, when I look back uh, along the way, you know, the fly fisherman, the mechanic, you know, my squadron commanders, like people who didn't, they never let me know that they were involved in me getting where I needed to go. Uh, that. That's how business is done. I think I'm a good example of what can happen if people give a shit. Yep. And <laughs> it was kind of kid gloves until I got past um kind of the long-term mental health stuff that I was in. I spent four months in a place uh where I learned a lot about trauma and how we're not that special. And uh, you know, I talk about it in the book, but yep. you know, there were people who had horrible things happen to them and they did not volunteer for those things. Yes. And yet and yet they wanna have a life and they wanna fight and they wanna get better and they wanna help the people around them. And that was inspirational. And then after I get out, spit out the other side of it, I you know, I go back to you know, Nui used to say, Hey man, I don't know where he got it, but he used to say, Hey man, you're either an asset or you're a liability. And I felt like at the point where I got wounded, I was a liability from there until I decided I wasn't going to be that way anymore. And the only way I could have gotten to the point where I could be an asset again is by people investing themselves in my life and helping me. I use this term with mental health and then I'll stop with this whole thing. But I did this uh, town hall meeting for CNN after Anthony Bourdain uh, yep. committed suicide. Kate Spade committed suicide and Anderson Cooper hosted it. And his brother had killed himself. David Axelrod was there. His father had committed suicide. Carl Rove who is his enemy in the political sphere his mother had committed suicide these guys were having these conversations it was an amazing thing but at the end a lot of the people that were in the studio audience there with me were saying things like hey you know we need more assets we need more resources you know for mental health and blah 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 and I, and I just think that's completely missing the point I think for me the resources were there we had doctors at our unit we had places we could go we had people we could talk to but the resources I, I i'll draw a diagram sometimes the resources are in this nice building over here but there's this this bridge across the river what i call the river shame and i was ashamed that i would need help i was ashamed that you know those resources are for other people like i'm not i've been trained i went through all this hard stuff and i'm supposed to be above that shit right well my buddies took me by the hand and walked me across the river shame into the place where I could get resources, and when I got there and said I didn't want to be there, they said, "Yeah, you got to do it." And when people save your life, you owe a couple of things. You know, you can't disrespect them, and you got to live your life full. So that river shame is a big deal, and the only way some people are going to ever get across that is with help. Like the resources are there. I wasn't going to call in a one eight hundred number. I wasn't going to go to the doc and say, "Hey, man, I think I need some some help." You know, I didn't like. That just wasn't in my. It wasn't in my game plan, you know.
0: It's a. This next comment is a so stupid, simple question, but I've had my own experiences, <laughs> in you know, just in general. This is not about me, so I'm not going to tell stories about myself here. But I, I can't count how many times in my life I've felt what you just described, Jimmy, like that. Whatever that thing is, I don't <laughs> need that. Yeah. It's it's not for yeah. me. I don't know. Yeah why not me and you the humans that we associated with and worked with for so long why do we think that i mean and here's the reason why i bring it up in that way jimmy like we spend our entire careers getting help from our teammates on our left and right why do we suddenly think we don't need help in another area
1: I think that area, meaning mental health, is one that we're all aware of, but we just have not really ever been in – well, I think that's changed now actually. But we hadn't been in a situation where we had people that we respected around us with our backgrounds and our mindset impart its importance on us. And I think part of that was, like we were talking about earlier, you know, the guys who right after 9-11 who learned those hard lessons. I think the cumulative effect of that sustained combat over that long period of time is something that we haven't seen since Vietnam.
0: Right.
1: But the difference is, and I've seen this, and I'm sure you have as well, the guys, when they came home from Vietnam, they didn't talk about shit. And it wasn't like, hey, you want to come throw the ball out at the, the first pitch out at the Red Sox games? No, people were ashamed the guys that came home from that war, the guys and the gals that came home from that war, they didn't wear their uniforms. They didn't want to get spit on. They got treated like crap. But so there was no learning from that is where I'm going. Uh the whole idea that you could put people through that grinder for that period of time and by the way it's still going on and not have some problems. Uh that's it's just crazy. A, it is. And when you get people in front of you who you respect and they say, look, man, I struggled and I didn't know how to handle this and I got help from this person or these people, uh, then a guy like me would be like, OK. I get the clues. I respect this guy. Um, I get it. So I have these signals in my head and now I know how to handle that. You know, I think that discussion just needs to be – it needs to happen earlier on in training and the culture and consistently over time. And I don't know about you, but I would argue that the the, the guys who hadn't really seen all that much combat were probably affected in ways that they needed to kind of sort out and that those things worked themselves out in other ways, you know, drugs, um, drinking, you know, whatever. You know, and the back to the part about the Vietnam guys, Now, and I have done a fair amount of time, some penalty laps at the VA. Uh, (laughs) Those guys are coming forward now, Mm. and I give speeches different places, and I'll have those guys come up and talk, and they inevitably get, you know, they're crying, and we hug it out, and they're like, "Yeah, I couldn't talk; nobody understood." You know, like so we missed an opportunity to learn some some stuff there, and I think we're learning things kind of the hard way now.
0: Yeah, um, about that discussion. Oh, absolutely. If again, for the benefit of the audience, Jimmy, if you could just reflect one more thing about the um, the front porch incident with the police—not <laughs> relative to the police, but relative to yourself—what? Because um, unfortunately, another friend of mine, not from our community, but from another community, who I met just a couple of years ago, after I got out, uh, Air Force um, guy committed suicide two days ago, and we know so many people from our general community, not just the Navy. And what I've been wondering a lot, especially putting together the residue paper with Preston and getting other people's reflections and, and talking about this with other folks is, did did, did you feel at that moment that um, you were, I'm putting words in your mouth, but I'll give you a chance to correct me. Was it, you were no good was it you thought you were no good to Kelly was it you were too tired and you wanted an escape you were over it what brought you to the brink you know at that moment for me
1: uh because of a multitude of reasons I felt like if I did not bring something to the table that was
0: meaningful I was wasting oxygen And, and you were the judge and jury on meaningful hundred percent. And
1: I did not see any way in which I could be something other than a liability. I just couldn't. And that's part of the thing, you know, with depression or PTSD, you are limited. You know, people, I've heard people say, Oh, so-and-so committed suicide. I just, I don't, there's something fishy here. There's no way he would ever do that. And I'm like, yeah, you're not in your right mind when you're depressed like that. And when you're considering that in a serious way, you're not you, you're something else. And I don't know. I think there's gotta be a way to insert the conversation about these types of things ahead of time. Uh, And I think this paper is a good start, but I I honestly think there has to be a focus on it that is not unlike physical fitness. You know, there's CrossFit gyms and stuff like there should be. I'm telling you, the directed studies program at Yale, that's a pretty good one because you're reading these philosophy papers about things, questions and like nobody fucking knows the answers to some of these things. And we're still working on them, you know, like. And so, hey, just chill. We'll you don't have it out. figured You're...
0: out. Odysseus and Marcus <laughs> Aurelius were struggling on this too. <laughs>
1: right, exactly. And, 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 you know, again, going back to the earlier conversation, how refined, oh yeah, we got Siri and we got running water, but we still, they'll get on Facebook. That'll take you back a couple of centuries, you know? Like, yeah. um, I think it's also we, guys like us. <clears throat> It's not just guys, but there are people – and I even actually see it with some of my young student friends. Um, because they are so driven and they consider themselves to be a high performer, they do not handle negativity. They, do, they just don't handle it as well. And, man, we need, to, we need to figure out a way to frame the mental health stuff like we do PT, like hey is there a kettlebell i can throw around in my head that'll help me get stronger you know and there's smart people out there that are working on those kind of things and i think truthfully that's kind of what you guys are doing here and i we got to keep swinging in that there's nobody that knows everybody's there's no key to unlock every human right. every key's different and i maintain and will till my last breath that nobody does shit in this world by themselves And so when I hear words like, you got to be resilient, well, that's an individual trait. I wasn't. Yeah. (laughs) You could say I am, you you could throw that word at me, oh, look how resilient he was, he did all these things, and that, no, no, I was lucky, because I had people around me that kept coming. When I wanted to give up, they didn't give up on me, and there's a value in that.
0: Speaking about, you know, people haven't given up on you, your wife, Kelly, but this is not really a question... Um, about kelly it's more of a reference to your chapter or your section that's called the chain which really struck a chord (laughs) with me and the reason why is this jimmy again for the audience group I, i probably was i don't know max 12 to 15 locker room cages away from jimmy for five years and never met him when we were on active duty and one year before you were wounded jimmy um So obviously a bunch of stuff happened before, before the spring of 2008, but, um, I was actually in my dress blues headed to Nate and Mike's ceremony over at the chapel when Tony, uh, came down and said, Coleman, Tommy was killed in a parachute accident. And the command wants you in Dutch to go do the notification to his parents. So we did, right? Um, I had to drive back to my house and get my traveling clothes so that we could fly up to Minnesota and drive to International Falls in a snowstorm to go meet Tommy's parents. And I remember when uh, Jim Morgan told me that Dutch and I were going. And on my way out to my car, I went over to see our command psychologist. And the reason I went to see him really quickly, Jimmy, was not for a conversation because I didn't have time for that. It was to ask him if he could print something out for me. On what I should say to somebody's parents. That's how unprepared God. we are for this, right? And the, the, the most frightened I've ever been in my entire life was, was <laughs> it, it wasn't then, it got worse, <laughs> oh. was in the middle of the night in March of 2010 when Adam Brown was killed. He was in green team with me. The command called my house in the middle of the night and said, Coleman, you're going to do the notification to Kelly Brown. And when I read that section in your book, Jamie, I, I, and I, I think I know now that in one of my best, my best wrestling teammate and buddy from college, his name is Doug Zembek. he's become relatively famous. Um, we were wrestling partners and, and Doug's death in 2007, you know, really knocked me off center. But having to do casualty notification to families was the most frightening thing and the most difficult thing I've ever done in my life. And so when you wrote that section about, this is, this pulls us back into like the experiences of life and residue, right? When you wrote the section about, and I'll quote here, my teammates were evidently not trained in how to relay this kind of message. We're not trained in how to relay that kind of message. You know, And, and those things piled up over time. The individual experiences we had were one thing, The experiences in relation to other human beings, who, as you said already, who didn't sign up for this shit, that interaction with a family member or a notification, um, I I almost felt like I couldn't do it, Jimmy. I don't even remember. I don't even remember. I've had like a blackout over it. You know, it it was so scary. I can't imagine.
1: (laughs) I, I I can't I can't imagine. And that like, exactly. Like, is there a course for, yeah. you know, to be the guy who goes and talks to somebody's wife or their parents? I I, I I can't I remember one time watching Captain Moore fold, take the flag and hand it to Lance Maccaro's mother, you know? Yeah. And I remember watching him do that. And I thought, you know, he's CEO, you know, he's the boss, he's the old man. Any man that's asked to do that, any person that's asked to do that, they get a free pass on whatever they do. <laughs> you know? yep. Like yep. it's <laughs> – I can't imagine. I can't, I can't. And, you know, Adam touches the cord with me because I would always get to work really early. And the deployment where um, – it was that 2008 deployment where they lost uh, three guys. Mm-hmm. First was Louis Safant. And I remember I came in at like 5 in the morning and Adam's cage was right across from mine. And his light was on. I'm like, oh, that's weird. I I always came in really early and he was there and he was, he was like shaking his head and I'm like, what he had a bunch of papers in his hand. And I said, what's going on? He's like, come here, man. And he took me into their uh, team room and we looked at the video and he started telling me what happened. And I was, I was blown away. And, and he was, you know, he was, he was in tears and I can't even remember how that meeting ended. And then a few days later, I came in and he's sitting there in his cage and he's bent over looking at the floor. And I'm like, no way, not again. And he looked up and he had tears, you know, and he was the guy doing that same thing. You know, like when you told me that story about how you had to go talk to Tommy's parents and then Adam's wife, you know, I just, there's gotta be a better way to do it. <laughs> I don't know. It's just, that's huge.
0: Yeah. It's, it's crazy. Um, so you obviously speak about this next thing as well, Jimmy. Uh, what? So now you've been through lots of different processes. Mm. I certainly have. A lot of our other teammates have, and we think about this in a different way now. What do? Uh, what do the you know quote unquote invisible wounds feel like today? It's 2020. We're 11 years past. You know, at least the night you know you were wounded, and and really everything changed. Um, but how, how do things feel today? Uh, I still have those struggles, you know, I still do
1: battle with the demons, you know, um, with the dragons, you know, I just, those things aren't going to go away. But what I am, what I have learned is that I, I have, because of the good folks I have around me, I have people that care about me and you know, they're, they're there to help me get through stuff. I also have some of the tools that I need, you know, mentally to understand the realities of those feelings. And then how not to let them be so debilitating. Although, you know, I do struggle. And then I think about, uh, the rewarding feeling that I get from giving speeches where, look, you know, that's the, the funniest thing about us. We think we're so special and that these feelings are original and, you know, they're just not, and we're not the last person that's going to We're not the first person that's had these feelings and we're not the last. There are people coming behind us. And I remember when the fly fisherman said that to me, he's like, hey, man, there's more of us coming. Um, And I get I get a reward by being able to stand up and talk. You know, I'd say wearing my ass for a hat and kind of lay it out there and contribute to that conversation. And then, you know, being admitted to Yale was uh, I didn't understand how big of a blessing it was. Being involved in that a challenging environment where you have to work really hard, uh, even at the age of, I'll be 53 soon, with people who can run faster than you, you know, figuratively mm-hmm. and probably, well, for sure, for sure, for real. <laughs> <clears throat> but being around people that bring you up to a new level, living on a different frequency, I think that's key. And I, I, I'm fortunate that I found that avenue of, and I, I'm, 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 I'm in a position with my family that I can do that. And you know, with my nonprofit, like I I have people that are super I mean they're better at it than I am. And so I have the time and the resources, the GI Bill American taxpayers are helping me go to an Ivy League college. And I you know, whether I earned that or not, you know, that's a different discussion. The point is the taxpayers made a promise to me, my nation made a promise to me and they kept it. And I'm using it and it makes me feel good. I think where I have the biggest trouble is it's particularly tough now because of the politics and the way our country is. And I'm a huge Patriot. I, I and I struggle with the idea that I can't believe this group or that group and I'm not going to listen to this or I'm not going to listen to that. Especially now that I'm in this you know, college where there's some people doing some amazing work on a national level. And I'm, I'm learning, you know, these things and the way that conversations go and, It's frustrating to me that that that's such a limited thing, you know, Um, but the tools that I learned to deal with the demons, um, they work for all those other things as well. You know, uh, I have the things around me that I can that I can influence. And most of what I say isn't as important as what of what I as what I do, uh, especially for like, you know, the young people around me. I, I feel really, really good most of the time and very, very fortunate.
0: Yeah, that's great. Um, we're going to be at the two-hour mark really soon, here, Jimmy. But I do want to ask you about a couple other things here. Mostly, I'm tracking chronologically, you know, through your book. <laughs> um, there's a couple things. One, and this is a this is a question I'm absolutely fascinated by, and I'll and and you can just riff on it a little bit. We, um, because we felt uncomfortable, anxious, frustrated. I know for myself, when I first transitioned out, um, I actually was simultaneously physically exhausted and was seeking, I was seeking overstimulation because I was so used to it. And I found myself hating the outside and everybody involved with it. I just hated it. Um, I thought it was boring. And if you, if you gave me a way to slow down, I couldn't because I was just like overamped, you know? And so after a couple of years now of working on this and because, you know, you've put a lot of work into this, something I'm curious about is we have these experiences over time and our memories are, we know from research, notoriously bad over over a long period of time after an event happens. And we know that an experience has a chemical hormonal valence. It has an actual electric valence, you know, in our body, in the central nervous system. Where do our experiences go? Like, where are they? If our, if our memory's bad and those experiences are history, Jimmy, but they, they are on us like a weight sometimes. I just find myself like some days asking myself, Hmm and this is probably a much bigger question we're going to answer here, but where did that experience go? Like it's gone, but it's here. And, and many, many yeah. times, like, I don't know what to do with it. You know, I don't know if I should believe my memory. I don't know if I should not believe my memory. I don't know if I should make up something new to fill in the blanks. It's just a bizarre concept.
1: I, I, I understand. I think I understand exactly what you're getting at. And I think <clears throat> What has been the most beneficial to me is, and and look, you've been on targets where stuff goes goes down. You come back to do the debrief. We got the photos of the target there. We got the entry points. We got where we did, you know. And guys who were on the mission 20 minutes ago are like, no, 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 no. Like, so everybody's memory is different. Everybody takes away something different from each of those situations, and the truth is, and this is where I've kind of struggled to get, is by and large, none of it matters. And where do those memories go? I had this saying, you know, we all have a backpack, and we fill it up with things all the time. The Things that we can't process right now when they occur, they go in that backpack, and we have to empty that backpack. I, I feel like that was what I had. I had this big backpack of all these things that had gone on, and I just didn't want to talk about it. Next thing you know, I'm laying there on a bed looking at the ceiling, and then all that shit's coming out, and I can't help it, and I didn't know... I didn't know how to deal with it. <clears throat> Those experiences, you know, there's this great discussions in philosophy is, do we have a soul? <clears throat> and, and That's a whole nother argument or discussion we could get into, but, but yeah, they, they make us who we are right now, but, but we have to make decisions about what's going on right now. Um, one of the hardest things for me to accept was that I could not <clears throat> affect uh, what happened in the past. I There was nothing, I mean, I could try to reshape it narrative wise or, you know, whatever. I'm, I'm, I mean, there's nothing wrong. with it. That's just part of living with who you are. I think uh, Joan Didion said, you know, we tell ourselves stories in order to live, you know. So the, what I carry with me is, if it's something that is affecting me being effective right now, like today, if it's making me not pick up the phone and call somebody or take advantage of an opportunity because I don't think I'm worthy or I don't have the, the, the gumption to, to be successful at it, then I need to deal with that. Um, that's how it affects me. It, it isn't something that's there. I mean, it's hard to forget about the leg, the bullet hole in my leg, you know, because I get up and it hurts. But, but there's a way that I can, I get to choose. I think it was Viktor Frankl, uh, Man's Search for Meeting. He said, the only real freedom we have is, it comes at the point where we're presented with circumstances. And then right here in this little section is we decide how we're going to deal with it. That's the only freedom we really have. So I can stand up in the morning when I get out of bed and go, fuck, my leg hurts. I fucking hate that guy who went AWOL and I'm pissed off and this is unfair and this shouldn't happen. Or I can get up and go, man, I still have a leg and they put it back together and I can fucking go out and get on my rower and row and I can walk to work and go to class. You know, so I think that little bit of freedom that we have in that moment, that's where the experiences don't matter. They do insofar as it makes us who we are, but they shouldn't influence what we're trying to do right now today and that's easy to say it's a lot harder to do
0: yeah i'll uh one of the i want to talk to i want to ask you about mike day's comment when he uh when he said you're not losing your mind jimmy we all have our own path through this stuff and i put it in bold here true you say truer words were never spoken ever and um i'm not going to speak for other you know troop commanders and ground force commanders i'll, I'll just speak for myself is that Coming up the way I came up, um, when I went to U.S. Naval Academy, I didn't even really know there was a difference between an officer and enlisted. I just thought everyone went into the Navy. And so (laughs) I I never really got too attached to the separation between the humans, right? And I really struggled when I got out with I didn't do enough, I wasn't close enough, I never got wounded. In fact, the confession I wanted to make, Jimmy, we have never had the time to talk about it, was I remember you moving around the compound probably sometime in 2010, maybe late 2010. And I remember seeing you walking across the compound. I was coming out of the old, well, it's not important. And I was like, shit, man, that's Jimmy Hatch. Like, that dude has done it all. And <laughs> we, we assign this bizarre value to... Did we just make up, right? Like you, you said earlier, like I was the judge and jury on who did the most. I got to decide, and every other measure of the man was more than I did. And yeah. that's a really bad – so I, I had taken experience residue and dogpiled judgment residue that I just made up. Yeah. I just wanted to get your thoughts on when Mike <clears throat> shared that with you.
1: Well, you know, when Mike shared it with me, because of the situation I was in, you know, suicidal in the emergency room, they're talking me into admitting myself to the psych ward. Mike got shot 27 times. Uh, I got shot once. And he's sitting there looking at me. And for him to say that to me, it gave me permission then to just be okay with the situation that I was in. Um, That was a gift and i think that's important to i think it's important to let the people that you are around i think you need to give that gift as much as you can i think that gift is is more powerful than we can even imagine but i also think i'd like to go back a little bit you know yeah. i there were guys walking around the compound that i same way you know people that i thought oh my gosh you know um but i actually believe in a healthy way, if, if that's a, that's the way to go, I look at the kids in my class, I'm like, they're all smarter than me. And so is the professor. But I can. I think it's good to put yourself in a position where you're like. I don't ever want to be the guy that walks in the room and go, yeah, I'm the smartest guy here. If, I, if I'm that, I, I got a problem. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think it needs to be healthy, too. I think you can say, yeah, these kids are all smart. Me, but I got some things I can contribute, you know, or, you know, in whatever the situation is in. I feel like one of the greatest things about naval special warfare is that we went to the same training together. Yeah. I went through Hell Week with officers. I saw them suffer and fucking keep driving on. I was at weak points and they helped me. They were at points where I can help them. <clears throat> I think that that's a, a certain gift to that. I think that's a very important dynamic about our uh, community. Our you know my, our former community. I think you know what Mike Day said and the way he conducted himself in that moment was a gift. And I think you know if we concentrate on being vulnerable, uh, you know, here's a guy who got shot 27 times and I got shot once and I was losing my shit, and he's like, "Hey man, let's we all got to figure it out." You know, uh, that's just permission to be fucked up for a little while. Okay, now. Let's go. Let's get better. Let's get fixed. And, you know, you're not in a I wasn't in a position to talk about getting better at that point. Right. <laughs> but, but the fact that there were people that, I mean, the fucking room was full. The, yeah. the word went out that I was going. I mean, there were medical people from our former unit there. There were people from SOCOM, cool. I mean, there's like fucking eight people in this room for yeah. Jimmy Hatch losing his mind. You know, it, you know, that kind of, that show up and just make it happen thing. That's worth something.
0: Yeah. A lot of people who. Uh, didn't know you, other squadrons, younger guys. A lot of people like cared about your situation at the time, you know, who I'm sure you've never even heard from, you know. Yeah. Which is which is nice to know.
1: It is. And I, I knew, I started to realize right away that, you know, once the hospitalization occurred, I started to realize people did give a shit. Yeah. And guys were showing up. To the hospital in their freaking uniforms, and I was embarrassed. And people just kept
0: showing up. I mean, there's
1: yeah. something there's something to say about all that stuff.
0: Um, four more bullet points here. Uh, one one big question, Jimmy, and then three small ones, three fun ones. One is uh, late in the book, page two forty eight, when you're describing your process of touching the dragon. You say that you reckon with the facts until you see that the packet of evidence you think you've assembled is incomplete. And I love that. It's obviously thematically relevant to everything we've been discussing for the last hour and 45 minutes, but this idea of mapping meaning onto those experiences, I think we realize, most of us realize that our quote-unquote packet of evidence is like horribly miscombobulated. Besides the (laughs) obvious stuff that you've already spoken about here, Jimmy, and written in the book, is there any other reflections on the audience, for yourself, for the two of us just having this conversation, reassembling and tools too, like reassembling the packet of evidence correctly that in a way that we can not just deal with it, that's too broad of a term, reassembling the packet of evidence so that we can make some meaning of it. We can move beyond it. We can actually share it with other people like our family members or, you know, just some thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, I think. The first thing I would say to to answer that or to respond to that is that in order to put together your packet uh, and then be able to process it, you can't have booze and drugs running through you, at least not the way I had it running through me. You know, the adults need to be in charge of what's going into your head. Uh, You know, I was self-destructive, drinking, taking my meds, going crazy. And the – you cannot – you do not have a hope. Of coming out the other side of examining that packet successfully, if you're boozing, um, if you're abusing drugs or substances, you, you just—it's—it is—it is impossible. And I and I don't believe that we put enough emphasis on that. Um, and I remember uh, the guy I call the Dragon Tamer, and you know him. Um, I remember him saying we got to get you in here and get you dried out so we can start going to work on this stuff. And he was right. I think the next part of that is context is huge. I remember after, you know, I went through, it's in the book, I went through the legal pad and wrote out the scenario, the whole thing from the night I got hurt, you know, the, the final version of it. And, you know, it was, it was easy to unpack in a negative way because the mission, in my opinion, failed. But I didn't really do the due diligence when I looked at it honestly, with my head cleared up. The, the decisions that I made were based on experience that I'd had on previous deployments and the training that I'd been given, and other operations that I'd heard about. And I was doing my best. And whether or not I messed up, uh, it doesn't take away from the fact that I was really trying. I was I was trying to do what I thought was the very best thing. And that dog got killed, and it that I. That's why I'm doing what I do with this nonprofit thing. I can, I got to pay that back, you know, but the context is huge. And I don't know that we can, I think you have to be in a certain state of mental, you have to be in a state of being able to change your mind. Like you mentioned earlier, I think that's really important. Um, So the fear has to be out of there that you're going to, you're going to be honest and wide open. and, And then you have to have a commitment that, I'm, I want to do this. I need to do this. I need to process this so that I can get on and contribute and be an
0: asset. Driving us to the finish line here a little bit, Jimmy. Some some easier ones and, yeah, no and some fun ones for folks transitioning. Um, normal transition, extreme transition, and I would put extreme transition in you know major injury or whatever. I don't want to put it on the spectrum, but right. A- anything you've read, seen, watched, a resource that you think is underrepresented. Again, a book, a thing available to folks transitioning and not just veterans. Lots of people will listen to this team cast. Yeah. A resource yeah. in this realm of conversation that you wanted to recommend when you were thinking about coming on the show?
1: I, I you know, one of my heroes just passed away and I got to meet him um, a few weeks before he died and I got to spend some time with him one on one. His name was Harold Bloom and he was. Um, a literary critic and he was a professor at Yale for a long time.
0: Wrote the Western canon.
1: Yeah. He wrote that book, but he also wrote a book called how to read and why. Mm. And when, when you start reading these great books, like I did in that directed studies program, it, it becomes clear right away that this, the authors, all of them who were very different from me, I had a friendship with them. We were communicating and I I didn't realize how important that was. I didn't feel lonely sitting in the apartment by myself when I had my dog with me. But reading these things, I felt like I was in a discussion with these great minds who who were courageous. But here's this quote, and I recommend this book for anybody. He says, I don't know that we owe God or nature a death, but nature will collect anyway. And we certainly owe mediocrity nothing. Whatever collectivity it purports to advance or at least represent. And nobody wants to live what they consider to be a mediocre life. So I feel like if we grab a book, one of these classics, be open to having your mind changed and giving yourself some grace that you're going to be okay, you're going to try, you're going to struggle, you're going to make mistakes, but you're not going to live a mediocre life. (laughs) You're going to be value added. And I don't know that there's a better way to say it than that.
0: What's cool at Yale, Jimmy, that some of us will never know about because we won't go there. What's cool?
1: What's really cool, uh, one of the coolest things that I got involved with, uh, kind of by happenstance, one of the young students asked me to go. Partially, I think, because they wanted me to participate. And this happens in different organizations at Yale. And and I don't know that this doesn't happen at other colleges, but I have never heard of it. Um, There was a group they call Telltale. And it is kind of like the moth. Is that what it is? The Mm -hmm. moth? Where you tell like seven-minute stories or whatever. yeah. But it has to be true. The rules are it has to be true and uh, you get invited and you have to tell the story to the membership of the group, the leadership of the group before you get up and present it. And anybody can come. And it's not just Yale. People from the Mm. community can come. Um, And I was – Absolutely. I think this is such a huge point that we could learn, meaning our former community could learn from this, these kids at this academic place, this, this five to seven minutes in front of some strangers, some people that you, that, you know, I listened to a kid tell a story about his mother dying of uh, cancer and Uh, you you think you know this story as it's going along, right? Like, oh, his mother's tragic. You know, it's horrible. He had to work through this. But he tears up as he's talking and he says, you know, I just didn't want her to die without knowing who I really was. And I couldn't really figure that out for a second. Then it hit me. It was about his his sexuality. And seeing that kid's heart, like, on his sleeve and as he was talking about how he went through that process – The fears that he had, this honesty is where I'm going. He was worried she wouldn't accept him, that she wouldn't love him. And and he said, you know, I remember her crying when I told her. And then I realized she didn't even have to say it. She was crying because she wasn't going to be there to help me get through it. And like, these are kids, man. That Those types of conversations happen on the regular. So it's not just the classes. It's that kind of community. I, I was sitting, I'm mean, just one more. This young woman, Definitely. in fact, in the essay, that, that snowflakes essay, I refer to her. Her grandfather was the uh, World War II uh, aviator who flew uh, Corsairs. Yeah. And went back to Yale and couldn't complete it because, you know, he was drinking. He shut himself in his room. He just didn't want to deal with people. You know, you and I have both been there. Um, this young lady walked into class one day. This is after, this is this last semester. This is after I wrote that article about her and, or, you know, about my experiences and she was included in it. She walks into class one day and we, in our literature class, our professor, this was genius. uh, She would do a starter every day. She would start with one student and we'd go around the room and talk about what was going on in our life, something significant. And some people took it really seriously. This young woman walks into class towards the beginning of the second semester. She said, you know, She sits down. This this young woman is brilliant, like all the other kids. And she said, you know, I'm really struggling to make friends. And now think about that for a second, right? Like she's in a room, 18-year-old young woman. Pretty tough spot in my life when I was 18. I was worried about a lot of things, you know. Honest. Courage, man. 18-year-old girl. And she said, and so I called my dad and my dad said, you know, it takes initiative. You can't just wait for people to come be friends with you. You have to get out there and try, you know, put out some effort. She's talking like this in front of, and the old guy with the tattoos and the professor. And I was almost in tears at the courage that that took. And I think we could use that same type of courage. She gave a great example. In law enforcement, in first responders, in the military, like this kind of honesty, like, wow, (laughs) wow. That's the kind of incredible stuff that I've seen at Yale. I I mean, it blows me away.
0: What struck me being out, Jimmy, is like, and I know it's sometimes age dependent and it's certainly context dependent and it's situation dependent. I'm not saying you and I needed to have a conversation like this if we're in the same squadron, but the guys that I love the most, and I'll just I'll just use the the still active duty category that I respected the most, that I wanted to physically be around because I felt like being close to them physically made me a better human. I've never talked to them for more than 15 minutes about anything deeper than whatever shit we had going on at the time. And that was our way of connecting, but I'm so sad and disappointed. That there's 50 guys in our troop that, the, the it t- because of the situation, because we were physically sitting next to each other in the talk, I actually know Tommy V the best, and he's the guy that I actually know the least, and what I mean by that, Jimmy, is like, we're not peers. Like, we didn't come through at the same time frame. Like, his buddies were Toph yeah. and other guys, right? But I only know Tommy because we were we spent enough time sitting next to each other, but... We never had a conversation like this and you're getting that. That's amazing that you're getting that, uh, Yeah, it's something we can learn, you know?
1: Oh, a hundred percent. And, and I, I think about the, you know, there were a couple of times and I actually mentioned one of them in the book where <clears throat> we are struggling, guys are struggling. And that, that i talk about video and that guy reading Twas the night before Christmas to his daughter who was home, you know, we we're overseas <clears throat> going into the supply room and, um, Al-Assad and, and turning on that one light bulb. And I had the video camera and he read it and I'm crying and he's fucking crying. We're trying to keep our shit together. And I'm just thinking about his little girl. Who's like what, two or three years old at home. And here we are, these tough guys crying, you know? Yeah, no, I feel you. I I
0: read one. I did one. Like read stories to my, my boys are 17, almost 15 and 11 now. I read one of those yeah. stories and sent it back by a DVD and told Bridget, no more. Like, I couldn't get through the book.
1: <laughs> yeah. 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 For sure.
0: Um, we didn't talk about the dogs, but I want to finish on dogs for a couple of reasons. Yeah. One, because I want to make sure everybody who hears this knows about Spike's K9 and we'll have all that in the show notes, of course. Um, but two, two fun questions. How many dogs do the hatches have right now? And, and what is the freaking video production setup, Jimmy, to get the ground level dog videos?
1: Dude, I take that video stuff seriously. Yes, you do. I have my Dutch shepherd, who's my service dog that goes to class with me. I have a pit bull from the shelter because we always have one of those. And her name is Pearl. She's getting older and slowing down a little bit, but she's a boss. And then I have a French Bulldog, and that's the one who you're probably referring to in the videos. Her name is Lola, and she has a penchant for battling what I call the yard beasts, yes. which are the ble- the leaf blowers, and then the RC car, the remote control car. She wants to kill that thing, dude, and that drive is amazing. And so I've worked with different GoPro setups on the car, and I've had to you know, crash things and broke them, and I've had – other dogs, you know, grab the GoPro off and smash it. But uh, it's – look, the dogs are great. And the re- part of the reason that I love the dogs is they don't try to hide anything from you. Yeah. They're just kind of who they are, you know, and uh, there's a beauty to that. I think, you know, being having an opportunity to care for something else that can't take care of itself in certain ways is really important. And I felt like I kind of failed with, you know, some of the dogs that I was operating with that ended up getting killed. Um, I remember one time giving a speech to a group of academics and this this very um, smart professor, she came, we were sitting in a kind of a focus group after I'd given my speech and I talked about how dogs saved my life because it got me out of myself, you know, and I had to take care of and make sure that they were fed and trained and and she looked me right in the eye and she was teared up and she said, you know, I, I almost ended my life. But I looked at my dog right before I swallowed the bottle of pills and I thought, who's going to feed that dog? And so I didn't do it. You know, So, I mean, if nothing else, they're like a bailout, right? Like, OK, I can't smoke myself because I got <laughs> to take care of the dogs. <clears throat> yeah, man, I love I love them. I love their emotions. I love watching them work. Um, and, you know, look, <clears throat> we'll get to the Spikes Canine fun stuff. But, you know, many of us are safer. I mean, I can't speak for you. I don't know exactly your experiences, but a lot of guys, a lot of my friends came home, myself included, because those dogs did some work and helped us. And uh, I see that with police departments all over the country. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm into it. I'm into oh, it, yeah, no. it.
0: Diesel was our dog and I'm sure you know him well. And uh, yeah, man, he, he was a badass. <laughs> yeah, he was. I've never <laughs> yes, met another human. I've never met another human being like Diesel.
1: No, they uh that dude like I tell people, you know, I got shot in the leg and I was done. He got shot in the fucking chest with the same kind of gun and went back to work. All his teeth were worn down from punishing motherfuckers and he still he would go back over there and pound dudes, yeah. It was I was there in Hol- I was there in Holland when we tested him. Really? And uh yeah, he was a bad ass from the moment I saw that dog. And the people who adopted him, who we both know, yeah. uh when I was laying here at home after I got out of the hospital, right after I got wounded, he brought him over. Yeah, I'll never forget that. He brought him to the house. And that, because I was so emotional about losing Remco, yeah. um, being responsible for his death, it was a significant thing for me. Um, yeah, I love those dogs, man. He, he was
0: great. I don't I don't get a chance to talk about Diesel a lot because the venue's not always appropriate, but he, one of the reasons he was such a physical monster was because on that oh seven oh eight 08 deployment, um, he would walk around the compound, he would pick up that that Humvee tire was on its side, you know, and he would get, <laughs> yeah. he would stick his head in the hole and then obviously get his he, he would get his the bottom part of his jaw on the other side of the hole and pick that entire tire up. And it saved yeah. his life, Jimmy, it saved his life because his front hindquarters um, the guys had to loosen his his harness because he was getting so big.
1: <laughs> He's working out. Yeah. I mean, I remember talking to the guys that got him out of the cave and like yeah. the blood was shooting like six feet in the air. And yeah.
0: Um, yeah. Last thing is promote the heck out of Spikes K9 just give everybody a chance to understand what's going on there and then and then we'll wrap.
1: Cool. Spikes K9 Fun I started in 2014. <clears throat> I ended up after I got out of the mental facilities and had uh, bad luck trying to find work, including trying to work at the Apple store, they didn't really want anything to do with me. Uh, I went to the police department, uh, the same police department where the guys helped me out. The night I went crazy and asked them if I could help with their dogs. And they said, heck yeah. And they kind of took me in. They didn't need my help, man. But they knew that I needed to have something to feel good about. So one of the dogs that I was helping with got sick and needed a surgery and the city just didn't have the budget. So I w- I was freaking out. And I took a picture of me and Spike and I had some sweatshirts done up and sold a bunch got on Facebook and said, Hey man. And I didn't realize how many people love dogs. And so it was pretty successful. I was able to pay for the surgery for the dog and then the travel for the officer. He had to go down to NC state and I had money left over. And then I started realizing, okay, man, there's a need out here. So we got our tax exempt status in 2015 and I had some really good people around me who were successful business people. And they kind of helped me get everything set up with, you know, getting the, the legal team there to help me get the 501, Uh, C3 set up. And then uh, some really good advice from some people who were um, extraordinarily well off and who had been giving to different charities for a long time, kind of helping me realize what they looked for in the charity. So I've kind of shaped it based on those inputs. We're we're pretty small. Um, We have myself and and Emily, who's our director of operations, full-time employees, and we have three part-time employees. And actually we just Picked up an intern for the summer, one of my classmates from Yale. She's amazing. Um, We don't have an office. We don't – You know, we work from our kitchen tables. And in this day and age, especially given the things that have happened recently with COVID-19, we see how much we can get done uh, with a computer. So about 80 – I think it's 84 84 cents on the dollar go directly to the mission. Uh, So that's a big deal. And – Some people still are like, oh, no, you you pay too much in salary. But I I disagree with that 100%. If you want people to work hard towards the cause, you got to take care of them. And that's what we do. So we've helped out about 1,084 dogs in 46 states.
2: Dang. And
1: there's 25,000 working dogs in the United States, to include those in the military, police, search and rescue. And I want to help them all. If a dog goes to work on behalf of a community or our nation – Then they they should have the best gear possible, and they should have the medical coverage possible, the best medical coverage we can give them. So, as we mentioned, we're talking about Diesel, the family that adopted him. You know that dog went through some shit, and he had some injuries. And just like us, we get out of the service, and we got to go see the doctor more. It's just what happens when you get older. Well, Diesel needed some surgeries, and you know, people in the military don't have the kind of money to just drop you know two thousand bucks on a surgery. So we step in and we do that for cop dogs, military dogs. We, we've helped out a lot uh, with that. We also provide you know, ballistic vests, yep. uh, which are important, and the same equipment that we used on our dogs in combat, except the ballistic version. Um, and then we provide – and I didn't know this, but more dogs are actually killed in hot cars than are killed by violent Whoa. altercations with with suspects, yeah. So what happens is the officer's – don't always have to do everything they do with the dog. So they may have something going on, a meeting, or maybe it's where they've got to go into a house, do an arrest or whatever. <laughs> and so they leave the dog in the car, the car's running. If the engine stops or the air conditioner breaks, the, you know, the deal, man, the, the temperature can go up really quickly. And a lot of dogs die that way. So we got together with a company who gave us a pretty good, um, you know, so we're a nonprofit, gave us a pretty good deal. And it's a system where if the temperature in the vehicle goes up to a dangerous level, it'll roll the windows down. And make the lights turn and maybe hmm. bleep the siren, and then if their temperature continues to climb, it'll pop the door so the dog can get out, which is great. No one of the one of the one of the extras with that, and I didn't realize it. And it wasn't long after we started providing them, a guy from up near DC called us one morning. and said, "Hey man, last night I want you to know that thing saved my life." And I'm like, "Your life? It's a hot. It's a temperature." And he's like, "No, no, no. no. There's a key fob that comes with it. You can pop the doors." He said, "I pulled these guys over out in the woods, and dudes got out of the car and started working me over, dragging me off into the woods. Whoa, and I popped the key fob, and the dog came out, leveled the playing field, and we took care of action but wow, you know you get stories like that i I mean, I've seen dogs fall into pits with rebar and survive because of the vest like it's I can never recover what happened with Spike." Uh, or Falco, or Remco, or Toby, and the four stars in our logo represent a dog that I worked with that was killed in combat. I can't I can't change that, but what I can do is work on making sure the ones that are still going out and helping people are doing what they're doing. So we have a website, spikescaninefund.org, S-P-I-K-E-S, letter K, number nine, fund, F-U-N-D.org, spikescaninefund.org, and we have Facebook and all the social media stuff. What's really cool, and I'll throw this out there, is Anderson Cooper has been one of our biggest supporters, and he's a great guy. Yeah. Very, very big proponent of law enforcement and the military, hmm. and loves dogs. But he's going to be playing on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire on the 28th of May.
0: Okay, uh,
1: I'll put that in his the show notes too. Yeah, yeah, he's done that in the past with Jeopardy, but this time it's Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, uh, and he's supporting us. And I think you know we need that help right now. People are hurting economically, and so our our donations are a little bit down. But you yeah, know, hey, we're we're going to keep swinging, and do what we got to do. But um, yeah, thanks for the. Thanks for any uh, help you can get transmitting that. We want to help any dog that works on behalf of a community. Uh, we don't help out like emotional support dogs, things like that, but we do help out police dogs. Fire department's using a lot of dogs now for accelerant detection. Um, airport dogs, search and rescue. Military dogs. We've helped out a lot of different military units who the units won't provide the dogs with good equipment, and these guys, particularly like conventional dogs that get tasked with going out with these um special forces a teams to the badlands and the dogs don't have any kind of good gear so we've been helping out with that um and one of the biggest things that have touched my heart in this is having you know um some of the guys from one of the special forces group when we used to do it uh carry a flag in our backpack on a mission and send it back to somebody and say you know I got one from, you know, Green Beret, uh, and his dog, a picture and the flag full, you know, like it's an awesome deal, man.
0: Yeah. I loved it. I'm Mm -hmm. a lucky dude. Well, Jimmy, thanks for, I mean, for me, obviously, thanks for doing this. We spent way more time than, than we scheduled, which I suppose doesn't surprise me. Um, (laughs) thanks for your work with Spikes. Thanks for your work when we were all active duty, um, following your trajectory, as I mentioned at Yale is inspiring to me. And I know a lot of people just love to see how you talk about it. I mean, it's really important. It's not, you know, oh, Jimmy wrote this article, my sem- semester at the snowflakes. It's not that it's more of like, wow, you know, just to see the inside of another environment is really educational. And, uh, and more importantly, for talking about your time, you know, transitioning out of the military dealing with all the stuff that we all dealt with and, and where you arrived today. It was awesome to have this conversation. I don't, yeah, I was, I don't necessarily think we need, um, well, we might need a part two, but we'll see about that.
1: Yeah. I'm up for it. And I, you know, look, man, I think, uh, what you're doing, you're in the ring swinging on some really tough issues and I, I respect you for it. And I'm, I'm glad you're bringing your intellect and your heart to bear, you know, it's going to help a lot of people out this paper, what you guys are, are doing. If I can ever, you know, seriously, if I can be of assistance, I would love to. And anyway, thanks for doing this, buddy. Awesome, man. I really appreciate it, Coleman. Thanks for the opportunity.
0: Thanks, dude. All right, peace. Have a good week.